0: So we come to the book titled The Gospel According to Mark. title of the book, The Good News or Glad Tidings According to Mark. We want to know who is this Mark who wrote this gospel. What authority does he wield? He's not named as one of the twelve apostles. Where did he get his information about the life of Jesus the Messiah? Can we trust what he writes as historically and theologically accurate? Is it a book that we can trust as being given by the Holy Spirit? Is it Scripture? The book of Mark is the shortest of the Gospels. It's action-oriented and it's succinct. The connective word and is used some 331 times. I didn't count. You know, somebody else counted them. I'm taking their word for it. They pointed out when you use the word and, you have to have something else to say. Something has to follow that. The word immediately or some form of it appears at least 40 times. Uh, King James, straight away, Jesus did this or that. We see Jesus as a servant. He's busy meeting needs and busy being God's Messiah. He's busy about his father's business. Pastor Joe Foch says Mark is a photographer. He's not a narrator. Uh, he's, he's not telling a big story. He's giving us... Snapshots of Jesus. Here's, you know, Jesus did this. Jesus did this. this. Look at what Jesus did. There's more emphasis on the actions of Jesus than on his discourses. There are 19 miracles cited and only four parables. Most believe that this was the first gospel written, but some disagree. They think Matthew was the first. Regardless, the Gospel of Mark was attested to and accepted by the early church as given by the Holy Spirit. Many think that Matthew and Luke, known with Mark as the synoptic Gospels, synoptic means the same view. They're giving us the same events, basically. There are some distinctions and differences, but they have a varied perspective coming at it from different viewpoints many think that Matthew and Luke copied from Mark and then added their own material. Some even postulate a mysterious source document preceding Mark called Q that Mark copied from. There's no evidence, however, that Q ever existed other than in the imagination of the scholars who seek to find a natural rather than a supernatural explanation of everything. Matthew was there with Jesus as an apostle. He would have no need to copy from Mark. Luke traveled for many years with Paul, who received his gospel directly from Jesus. And Luke also did some investigative work, according to his own testimony, probably interviews with original sources to verify the accuracy of the record. Again, he had no need to depend on another's account. I think a better explanation of the similarities is the fact that the Holy Spirit inspired the writings of Matthew, Mark, And Luke. They record the same life of Jesus with slightly different details or perspectives as we see in other eyewitness accounts. And of course, the Holy Spirit superintended the writing. In John chapter 14, verses 25 and 26, Jesus says, These things I've spoken to you, to his apostles, while being present with you. But the helper the holy spirit whom the father will send in my name he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all things that i said to you. Jesus authorized the uh, production of the New Testament in advance. And later on in Mark 13:31 we'll read where Jesus says heaven and earth will pass away but my words will by no means pass away. You now we mentioned before this is being said by a guy who wrote no books, you know, he didn't write anything down. He just, he just made the statement, and this is this statement is found in all three of the synoptic gospels, and then in Second Peter chapter one verses twenty and twenty one, we're told this: knowing this first, that no prophecy of Scripture is of any private interpretation, for prophecy never came by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. In this instance, the The word prophecy is being used as uh, words from God. So it's all the scripture that's being talked about. Didn't come by the will of man. Holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. Men that were set apart by God for this purpose. So why do we have three Gospels covering the same story? We get three different perspectives of the same view. We get different details, but the same teaching and events from the writer's. This is a confirmation of the reliability of the Gospel history without collusion, that is, they don't make sure their exact words are identical. The Gospels did not have authors' names attached to the manuscripts when they were produced, but the identities of the human authors was known from the earliest of times and the books were appropriately titled. We have genuine eyewitness accounts in the Gospels, but Mark was not an eyewitness of the events. This is true that Mark was not an eyewitness of the events, but the unanimous testimony of the early church is that he wrote for someone who was an eyewitness, namely the Apostle Peter. In fact, the uniform testimony of the fathers is that he was the interpreter of Peter and that he wrote his gospel under the eye of Peter and with his official approval. It has come down to us, therefore, with the sanction of Peter's authority. It is right to a place. It, its right to a place among the inspired books has never been questioned. That is by believers. Another says the early church widely regarded the author of Mark's gospel as the authentic voice and interpreter of Peter. This view was early stated, largely uncontroverted during the early Christian centuries, and ecumenically received by the church. In this case, "ecumenical" is a good word. Many times it's not a good word. But that means the whole church accepted this. The primary textual evidence for this viewpoint is strong and ancient. William MacDonald says, Tradition says, and probably correctly, that Mark's gospel is essentially Peter's reminiscences, which would account for the personal details, the action, and the eyewitness effect of the book. It would also correspond with the humility of the account, if we see it from Peter's perspective. For example, we find some negatives about Peter, but some positives are not mentioned. The de- denial of Jesus is there in great detail, but he doesn't talk about walking on the water. The rebuke of Peter at his revelation of faith as to the identity of Jesus is there. He says, Give behind me, Satan, but not the commendation. Blessed are you, Simon Barjona. Well, John Mark, this is his full name, John, his Hebrew name, Mark, his Latin name, uh, from Rome for the Roman world. It's giving Simon Peter's account of the gospel. The early church felt that this was true and took that position. For example, Papias, one of the early church fathers, recorded that John Mark got his gospel from Simon Peter. And I quote, Mark, the interpreter of Peter, wrote carefully down all that he recollected, but not according to the order of Christ speaking or working. Again, Papias, around AD 110, says he quotes John the Elder, who is probably the Apostle John, though conceivably another early disciple. John was a common name. He quotes John the Elder as saying that Mark, the associate of Peter, wrote it. Justin Martyr, Irenaeus, Tertullian, Clement of Alexandria, Origen, and the anti marcionite prologue to Mark all concur that Mark wrote this uh, as he got the information from Peter. Eusebius, who was the first church historian, he was baptized around 296 A.D., so you get an idea of the time frame. He collected the testimony of earlier believers, and if you get his uh, ecclesiastical history, you can see a lot of quotes from different people in the early centuries. Well, Eusebius says that such a light of piety shone into the minds of those who heard Peter that they were not satisfied with once hearing, nor with the unwritten doctrine that was delivered, but earnestly besought Mark, whose gospel is now spread abroad, that he would leave in writing for them the doctrine which he had received by preaching. End quote. So it was, therefore, that we got Simon Peter's gospel through John Mark. Uh, The early church art also reflects this relationship between Mark and Peter. You find Peter speaking to a group and Mark sitting there either taking notes or listening. Most authors accept the early and unanimous opinion of the church that the second gospel was written by John Mark. He was the son of Mary of Jerusalem who owned a house there which the Christian used as a meeting place. McDonald again says, Mark's brevity and journalistic simplicity make his gospel an ideal introduction to the Christian faith. On new mission fields, Mark is often the first book translated into a new language. In fact, Mark is the most translated book in the entire world. One reason is that it is the shortest gospel, but the other reason is that this gospel was written for people unfamiliar with first century Judaism. Uh, Most think Mark wrote it for the Romans. The tradition that Mark wrote in Rome is supported by the greater number of Latin words in his gospel than the others, such as centurion, census, denarius, legion, and praetorium. This John Mark is mentioned numerous times in scripture by name, usually just Mark, but also John and John Mark. The first uh, mentioned by name is in Acts 12.12, when Peter uh, is imprisoned. He's about to have his head lopped off the next day to please the Jews, and he's found asleep in the jail right He's really worried about this. he just you know <laughs> uh and the angel smacks him inside wakes him up and delivers him from prison, opening the gates and the doors and and he goes to a house where people are praying for him and this is acts twelve twelve it says when he peter. Had considered this, he came to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose surname was Mark, where many were gathered together praying. This is the John Mark that we're talking about. His mother had this house where Christians gathered and prayed. Acts 12.25, we find another mention of him. Um, Barnabas and Saul had gone to Jerusalem to take an offering for the saints. And in 1225, it says Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had fulfilled their ministry. And they also took with them John, whose surname was Mark. So John at this point leaves Jerusalem, goes to Antioch with uh, Paul and Barnabas. Then in Acts 13.5, this is the first missionary journey with Paul and Barnabas. It says, um, 13.5, when they had arrived in Salamis, they preached the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews, they also had John as their assistant. So John Mark goes with them on this first missionary journey, but all does not go well on this journey. In Acts thirteen thirteen, uh, it says, When Paul and his party set sail from Paphos, they came to Perga in Pamphylia, and John, departing from them, returned to Jerusalem. So John leaves Paul and Barnabas. I mean, he was there to... Have them as their—they were to have him as their assistant. So they lose an assistant. He heads back to Jerusalem. We don't know why, but he gets on the wrong side of Paul at this time. In Acts 15:36 through 39, then as Paul and Barnabas are preparing to go back and visit the churches that they established on that first missionary journey, they have a contention over John Mark. In verse thirty six it says, After some days Paul said to Barnabas, let us now go back and visit our brethren in every city where we have preached the word of the Lord and see how they're doing. Now Barnabas was determined to take with him John called Mark, but Paul insisted that they should not take with them the one who had departed from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. Then the contention became so sharp that they parted from one another. And so Barnabas took Mark and sailed to Cyprus. And so here's this break between Paul and Barnabas over John Mark. Uh, and uh, somebody's mentioned Barnabas was just the right guy to take John Mark. I mean, he's the son of consolation, right? He's And and we see the effects, you know, it's not spelled out for us, but we see the effects of Barnabas's ministry to John Mark and with John Mark later on. And some of these other references that we'll see. But uh, with this break between Paul and Barnabas, God ends up with double missiononia. missiononia. It's like double pneumonia only with missionaries. So it's a good thing. He gets two missionary teams instead of one missionary team. And, and you know, from that point in Acts, we don't read about Barnabas and John Mark anymore. And many people think, well, that's disapproval, you know, God, but I don't think so. I mean, the the chronicler was with Paul and he, he wrote, you know, from the perspective of Paul and what was happening with Paul and he was a companion of Paul, that is Luke. I don't think there was any negative toward Barnabas and John Mark. I think that they were probably blessed as they went on. They went back and visited some of those churches as well. Someday I think we'll hear a good thing concerning Barnabas and John Mark. We'll, we'll hear those details and those stories that we don't have for us. Well, later in Colossians 4.10, Paul indicates that he finds Mark as a faithful brother. In verse 10 of Colossians 4, Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you with Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, about whom you received instructions. If he comes to you, welcome him. So Paul was reconciled with Mark at some point and saw that he uh, was a valuable help in the work. In Philemon, verses, chapter 1, verses 23 and 24, uh, Paul writes and says, Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, greets you as do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, Luke, my fellow laborers. And then in Second Timothy 4.11 Uh, Paul writes this. This is near the end of Paul's life. He says, only Luke is with me. Get Mark and bring him with you, for he is useful to me for ministry. So we see this uh, connection between Paul and Mark again. And then the last reference we see is in 1 Peter 5.13. Last reference by name. Uh, where Peter writes, she who is in Babylon, elect together with you, greets you, and so does Mark, my son. So Peter refers to Mark as his son. It's possible that Peter was instrumental in Mark's conversion to the faith. That's usually what this means uh, when they refer to someone as their son. And so uh In later years, Mark became connected with Peter and and worked together. There was a bond forged between Peter and Mark. They both had a similar experience. They both failed, and they both were restored. And this connection with Peter then producing the gospel that we're going to begin studying. In addition to these references by name, there's a somewhat mysterious reference in Mark's gospel. And we'll get to it in Four, chapter 14, verses 50 through 52, where it says, "Then they all forsook him and fled. And a certain young man followed him, having a linen cloth thrown around his naked body. And the young men laid hold of him, and he left the linen cloth and fr- fled from them naked. And a, when the New Testament says naked, it's talking about in underclothes. This is this is how uh, modest <laughs> the society was in which they they lived. So, he's got this." Uh, linen cloth thrown around him keep warm. And then when they come to arrest Jesus, everybody runs away, he begins to take off, and somebody grabs that cloth and pulls away. He just, he just keeps going. And, and this guy's not named, this young man. Most consider this to be Mark's signature upon his gospel, you know, that he was there in the garden with them at that point. It's almost certainly a reference to himself. I can't imagine why this young man would be mentioned unless that were the case or why he wouldn't be named if it was if it was someone else. Well, as far as the dating of this gospel, uh, the New Testament books do not come with dates attached. That would have been nice. But the Gospel of Mark is among the earliest of New Testament writings and likely the earliest of the Gospels. If we look at it logically, the book of Acts ends with Paul under house arrest in Rome at his first arrest. Scripture implies he was released and later re-imprisoned and then executed by Emperor Nero in the mid-60s. The gospel according to Luke was written before the book of Acts, so it was before that period of time. And then Paul alludes to the book of Luke in his first letter to the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 9, 14. And he quotes from it in First Timothy. So Luke was around before Paul's passing, the gospel of Luke. Well, Mark was written before Luke, according to all sources. A date of the early 50s is not unlikely, but it could have been even earlier. Some have suggested a date of 39 to 40. Regardless, it was written quite early after Jesus's ascension. It became fashionable for a while for you know Bible scholar, critic type guys to say, well these these are gospels and they didn't really know Jesus and they didn't write you know they weren't written until the second or third century A.D. Now, the more evidence has been uncovered, it just can't that can't stand anymore. These things were written in the lifetime of the people who are named here. So from Eusebius, Epiphanius, and Jerome, we hear that Mark went from Rome to Alexandria in Egypt where he planted a church. And he died in the eighth year of the reign of Nero. So he's recorded to have died in 64 AD. Traditions note that he was dragged behind chariots until his bones were broken. Then he was thrown in a dungeon and then he was burned to death. He was martyred for his faith and he was faithful unto death. As mentioned, the Gospel of Mark presents Jesus as the servant of God the Father. In Revelation 4-7, there's a description of the cherubim around God's throne as beings with four faces, a lion, a calf, a man, and an eagle. By long tradition, the church has attributed one of these faces to each of the Gospels according to the character and message of the particular Gospel. In the cathedrals of Europe, this motif is repeated again and again by carvings or paintings of each one of these creatures, typically with a book. By tradition, the creature that represents the Gospel of Mark is the calf or the ox, a creature of work and service. The Gospel of Mark shows Jesus as the servant of God, as a workman of God. Jesus comes as the servant of God, as prophesied in Isaiah, Isaiah 42 verses 1 through 9, speaks of this servant who was going to come in his name. It says, Behold, my servant whom I uphold, my elect one in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the Gentiles. He will not cry out, nor raise his voice, nor cause his voice to be heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break, and smoking flax he will not quench. He will bring forth justice for truth. Those two scriptures were quoted of Jesus in the Gospels. He will not fail nor be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands will wait for his law. Thus says the Lord, God the Lord who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread forth the earth and that which comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk on it. I the Lord have called you in righteousness and will hold your hand. I will keep you and give you as a covenant to the people, as a light to the Gentiles, to open blind eyes, to bring out prisoners from the prison, those who sit in darkness from the prison house. I am the Lord, that is my name. And my glory I will not give to another, nor my praise to carved images. Behold, the former things have come to pass, and new things I declare. Before they spring forth, I tell you of them. So this coming of this servant Of the Lord was prophesied by Isaiah in Mark chapter 10 verses 42 through 45. We see the identification of Jesus as the servant says Jesus called his disciples to himself and he said to them, you know, that those who are considered rulers over the Gentiles lord it over them and their great ones exercise authority over them. Jesus was responding to the fact that they were arguing over who was going to be the greatest in his kingdom. And this is what he says, he says, yet it shall not be so among you, but whoever desires to become great among you shall be your servant. And whoever of you desires to be first shall be slave of all. For even the son of man, as Jesus referred to himself, did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. If we remember that this perfect servant was none other than God the Son, and that he willingly girded himself with the apron of a slave, becoming a servant of men, the gospel will glow with constant splendor. Here we see the incarnate Son of God living as a dependent man on earth. Everything he did was in perfect obedience to his Father's will, and his mighty works were all performed in the power of the Holy Spirit, says William MacDonald. Uh, J. Vernon McGee says, in Mark's gospel, Jesus lays aside the regal robes of kingship and girds himself with the towel of service. He's the king in Matthew's gospel. He's the servant in the gospel of Mark. But he is no man's servant. He is God's servant. It's important that each of us called to serve to be servants that were first God's servants and that we do what he would have us do and not simply respond to people and become their servant. We may very well be serving certain ones, but we need to first be God's servant. That's all that we're doing is will. A fellow named Bernard, I don't know if he was, you know, the dog was named after him. Way back in 1864, he said of the Gospel of Mark, St. Peter's saying to Cornelius has been well noticed as a fit motto for this gospel. God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Ghost and with power who went about doing good and healing all those who were oppressed of the devil. Acts 10.38. So that's a good summation, That Peter's statement of this gospel. Someone else has put it like this. I read in a book where a man called Christ went about doing good. It is very disconcerting to me that I am so easily satisfied with just going about. Mark's account starts with the beginning of the good news of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Of course, there are a number of beginnings in the Bible. Genesis 1.1, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. We read in Acts 4.24, when they heard that, They raised their voice to God with one accord and said, Lord, you are God who made heaven and earth and the sea and all that is in them. So the creator of God, the beginning of creation. In this beginning of creation, God made all things from things that are not visible. Hebrews 11.3, by faith we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God so that the things which are seen were not made of things which are visible. God made all that we see and all that we cannot see. Of the physical creation because of our limited visual field. He also created the spiritual realm, angels, and the souls of creatures. And when he made man, since he was made in the image and likeness of God, God breathed his own breath into Adam and he became a living soul. There is an invisible component to man that we only see as it is expressed through the physical body. The soul of man is unlike the soul of any other creature. Only man is said to be created in God's image. What a wonder and privilege that is, and also a great and grave responsibility. John, in his gospel, speaks of the beginning. The beginning spoken of in John's gospel actually goes back before the creation to a time, which may not be the right word, when the Word, Jesus, was with the Father and the Spirit. And John tells us that the Word was with God and the Word was God, or God was the Word is the order in the Greek manuscripts. Jesus was the creator God who came and lived among his creatures. Matthew begins with Jesus' genealogy and shows him to be a descendant of David, very important for his qualification to be the king of the Jewish nation. Matthew then writes about the events surrounding the birth of Jesus. Luke goes back further than Matthew to the events surrounding the birth of John the Baptist. And when Luke comes to genealogy, he takes the line of Jesus all the way back to Adam, showing Jesus to be not only king of the Jews, but also the true kinsman of all humanity and the savior of all, not only the Jewish believer. Mark's Gospel is the narrowest in scope of the accounts of Jesus' life. It spans the period from the beginning of the public ministry of John the Baptist to the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. I refer to it as the dragnet Gospel. Just the facts, ma'am. So Jesus is the Son of God and the Son of Man. He is the Here I Am and the Great I Am. Let's remind ourselves of what we're looking at when we come to the Bible. We're dealing with the words of men, as critics often allege, but not with mere words of men. We already read Second Peter 1, 20 and 21, Knowing this, that no prophecy of Scripture is of any private interpretation, for prophecy never came by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. 2 Timothy 3:16 and 17 that you're familiar with, all scripture is given by inspiration of God or is God breathed and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. We trust that God can preserve for mankind the communication that He desires them to have and that He desires them to look to for truth. Man created in God's image is a communicating creature. So we expect that God would be a communicating God. He is. And we must acknowledge His communication with man. He will keep His words uncorrupted. In Psalm 12, verses 6-8, through it says, "The The words of the Lord are pure words like silver tried in a furnace of earth, purified seven times. You shall keep them, O Lord. You shall preserve them from this generation forever. And then he says, the wicked prowl on every side when vileness is exalted among the sons of men. In John 17:17, 17, 17, when Jesus was praying for his apostles, he asked the Father, sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. In other words, make them holy, set them aside, apart from, from by your truth. So do you want to be holy? You cannot do so without being in God's truth and putting God's truth into you. From the beginning, authoritative works, Scripture, were identified and collected by the community of faith, that is, by believers led by the Holy Spirit, both in the Old and New Testaments, Furious works were identified and never became part of Scripture. You will find them in some Bibles listed as apocryphal books. Now, I had a book on my shelf; I'm probably still there, called *The Lost Books of the Bible*. You know, and supposedly these books were things that were eliminated or left out. You know, apocryphal. The word apocryphal means of questionable authorship or authenticity. These books were written by others than was claimed and were known to be such in the day that they were written. For example, The Wisdom of Solomon. They know that that wasn't written by Solomon or Ecclesiasticus, not Ecclesiastes. So there there are these other books. They attach people's names to them so that they would gain popularity, but they they were spurious. I don't know about you, but I don't think books of questionable authorship or authenticity should be included with books of proven authorship and authenticity. They may have some value, as other works of men may have, but they are not to be compared with God's revelation. With the authoritative books, we have the testimony of history as confirmed overwhelmingly by archaeological discoveries, so much so that it's the Bible that confirms the discoveries and not the other way around. We have the testimony of fulfilled prophecy in great detail, often referred to as God's signature upon the writings or His fingerprints. Only He can accurately tell us things to come without fail. And we have the testimony of the believers in the time periods in which the writings were produced. And we also have the testimony of the accuracy by which the Scriptures speak in every age to mankind on the issues of life and the circumstances of culture and society. The scriptures never grow old and are never irrelevant. They always apply to current conditions and to men's hearts. As we begin to study Mark and we come to a gospel, we're going to be reading the words of Jesus, the red letters. As a commentator, this causes me some trepidation. Who am I to expound upon the words spoken by the Lord Jesus? Um, Nobody in that regard. There are some people; they're called red-letter Christians who believe the words of Jesus are more authoritative than the rest of the Bible. This is not true, of course. Many use this argument to justify ignoring other parts of Scripture that do not appeal to their taste, such as the LGBTQ groups and other letters. And they'll point out, well, Jesus never addressed that, you know, specifically, uh, but the Scriptures do, and Jesus said, "Your word is." We've already read that all Scripture is inspired or God breathed by the moving of the Holy Spirit. The words themselves are God's words, whether spoken by Jesus directly or by another who was carried along by the Spirit, writing those things that God intended. Still, it's a dawning thought to read the words of Jesus and to seek to expound upon them like, I've got this. Right. (laughs) Right. Any understanding I have must come from him. This concern for Jesus' words actually serves as a reminder that this same trepidation should attend the exposition of all Scripture, not merely the red letters. It is all God's Word and equally authoritative if interpreted correctly. That's why James exhorts us in chapter 3 and verse 1, Let not many of you become teachers because we'll receive a stricter judgment. That's my least favorite Scripture. That's my anti-life verse. You know, people have life verses. Isaiah 66, verses 1 and 2. Uh, the Lord says, Thus says the Lord, Heaven is my throne, Earth is my footstool. Where is the house that you will build me and where is the place of my rest? For all these, those things my hand has made and all those things exist, says the Lord. But on this one will I look, on him who is poor and of a contrite spirit and who trembles at my word. Trembling is trepidation. It's defined as a state of alarm or dread. Apprehension. A synonym is fear. As a noun, it's an involuntary trembling or quivering. Again, tremulous, agitation, perturbation, or alarm. Our God is not a hard or harsh taskmaster. He understands our frame that we are made of dust. We have a reverence for his word and a desire to understand it correctly and apply it appropriately. Our fear is a reverence for God's communication and a desire to faithfully render its meaning. In 2 Timothy 2.15, Timothy was exhorted, Be diligent to present yourself approved to God, a worker who does not need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. The goal is to be approved by God and not by man. Rightly dividing has several ideas associated with the ancient term. Uh, one is rightly handle the word of God as one would rightly handle a sword. Another is to plow straight with the word of God, properly presenting the essential doctrines. You know, when Jesus talked about uh, putting your hand to the plow and turning back. You're not worthy of the kingdom of God. You're not going to be able to plow a straight furrow. You're not going to be able to rightly divide. Uh, It's used sometimes of cutting a road. And we see in Isaiah 43, which um, Mark will quote here at the beginning, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Not a meandering path, but straight there. Another use is to properly dissect and arrange the word of God as a priest would dissect and arrange an animal for sacrifice. Another is to allot to each their portion as someone distributing food at a table. And then rightly dividing may also be a tailor's term or perhaps a tent maker's term as Paul was a tent maker. That means to cut straight. So if you're putting together a tent or you're making somebody a suit, you want to be able to cut the material the way it should be cut. The word of God is to be properly interpreted to avoid false teaching and ideas. This is a straight way to deal with the there is a straight way to deal with the Bible in a crooked way. And we're all responsible to be Bereans, Acts 17, to check out what's being said for ourselves. So coming to Mark's Gospel, we read in the first three verses The beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in the prophets, behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way before you. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. The gospel is the good news or the glad tidings. The only good news for the sinner is the coming of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. He came to both preach and do the gospel. To pay the cost of sin, to redeem those in bondage and under the curse of sin, to seal his victory over sin and the grave, so that those who believe in him may be forgiven all of their sin, trespasses, rebellion, etc. Mark says, this is the beginning of that. Mark calls Jesus the Son of God in the beginning of his gospel. All four gospels speak of him as the Son of God. This is used in a unique or one and only sense, as John emphasizes when speaking of the only begotten Son of God. He's the only direct offspring of God the Father, begotten through the Holy Spirit. Others are sons of God by creation, Adam, and the angels are referred to in that way. Believers in Jesus are sons of God by adoption and sealed by the Holy Spirit as God's own possession. Some seek to deny that Jesus is God that is deity incarnated in human form. They say He's the Son of God, but not God Himself in any sense. But the Scriptures plainly declare many times and in many places that Jesus is God, Emmanuel, God with us. He is the Son of God and God the Son. As we noted, Mark starts this beginning with the coming of the forerunner, the one named John, became known as the Baptist, really John the Baptizer. He was sent by God, according to John 1.6. Luke chapter 3 and verse 2 tells us that the word of the Lord came to John in the wilderness, and he went forth with the message of God, and he began to preach, to proclaim, to herald, to publish the news that he had received. Mark describes the messenger by quoting from the prophets. This message is so important that the coming of the messenger is prophesied in the distant past centuries before arriving on the scene of world history. And that in itself is pretty amazing. <laughs> Here's the guy who's going to be bringing the message. I'm telling you about him. You know, and then, of course, the forerunner. He quotes verse from Malachi chapter 3. Just the first part of verse 1 where he says, Behold, I send my messenger and he will prepare the way before me. And you notice the pronouns are a little bit different here. Uh, when he quotes it, he says, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way before you. So the quote speaking of Jesus from the Father, but in Malachi, he says, Behold, I send my messenger, he will prepare the way before me. So the Lord is coming. He goes on to say, The Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, even the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, He is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of His coming and who can stand when He appears? For He is like a refiner's fire and like launderer's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. He will purify the sons of Levi and purge them as gold and silver that they may offer to the Lord an offering in righteousness. I think this uh, passage in Malachi goes beyond the first coming and, and proceeds to the second coming. but uh, So Mark, Mark quotes only the first portion of verse 1, but uh, it speaks here in verse 3 of purifying the sons of Levi. John was a son of Levi. His father was a priest. When the Lord comes, it's imperative that the way be prepared before him. This way is not the road that earthly kings would have re- refurbished before they traveled. It is a much more important and permanent way that is the roadway of men's hearts. The Lord wants to travel those pathways and the way must be prepared for his presence. And then Mark quotes from Isaiah 40 in verse 3 where uh, Isaiah says he's the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. It's fascinating that God sends John to the wilderness to preach his message. He doesn't go to Jerusalem or Samaria. He's not sent to Galilee to point to the Messiah. There is his house. His message is proclaimed in a desolate area and people are drawn to the wilderness to hear the message. We'll see later he says that all who were in Jerusalem and Judea went out to him, to hear him. And we see multitudes went out to hear him. You know, we heard a story some time back about a, a slave uh, who was freed. This would have been back, you know, when slaves were being freed. I can't remember his name, the fullness of his story. But he became a believer and he started going to a church and they were all encouraging him, you know, and everything was fine until he said he was called to preach. And then they all told him, no, no, you know, that Lord wouldn't do that. Uh, you're not qualified, et cetera, et cetera. And so he went out and uh, just began to do what he thought the Lord had called him to do. But he was, you know, nobody was coming to listen to him. He, was, he would be in a, a place or even in a church in a pulpit and just speaking to the empty seats, you know. And so word got out. Hey, you know, there's this guy over here. He's preaching the empty seats, <laughs> And people start coming. And, and you know, uh, before long, he was speaking to thousands of people. You know. What were John's qualifications? He was a son of Levi. We're told he was filled with the Holy Spirit from his mother's womb. But from there, he just went out in, in the wilderness, lived in the wilderness. John cried out not only in a physical wilderness, but also in a spiritual wilderness. Israel, for the most part, was not a nation of faith in the God of Israel. They were religious in many ways, but their hearts did not belong to God. God calls them out of this wilderness of barrenness and thirst into the comfort, shelter, and safety of the God of Israel. And John the baptizer was called to prepare the way for the coming of the Lord. Yahweh in Isaiah's text. The Messiah is the coming of the God of Israel to his people. What John prepared was a people ready to receive the Messiah, the Lord, because their hearts had been made ready. We see Jesus calling men to follow him. These first men were men who had been following the message of John the Baptist. And John's message is one of repentance. A preparation of the heart being made right with God. I'll see more about that. This morning, if you've been wandering in a spiritual wilderness, the Spirit is calling you this morning to come in from the cold, from hunger and thirst, to find shelter and comfort for your soul, to be forgiven of your sin and to be welcomed into the family of God. If you're feeling His drawing or His call, come to Him today. Believe in Him. So that you might have eternal life and not come into judgment. We'll continue with Mark from this point next week, Lord willing.